welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 25 for December 15th, 2010. Yep, 25. Almost to Christmas. Ironically enough, it is. Exactly. So this will be our... Uh, oh, hold on. Uh, it's sorry. almost Christmas, which falls on the 25th, and this is episode 25. Right, I got it. It's like aligned. It's like the stars are aligned. That's this. This is this is a good omen. Portends okay. for good things in the future. All right, awesome. That's and... the way I'm reading it. <laughs> and hopefully, 25 people will actually listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get wacky here. Yeah, let's, let's not be maybe. too positive. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this will be our second episode. Uh, based in the Star Trek the Motion Picture picture era. So we're still continuing the adventures of Kirk's second five-year mission after Star Trek the Motion Picture. Excellent. Yep. So we'll be doing the Star Trek comic strip number two and number three uh, that came out in everyone's local newspapers starting in January of 1980 and number three ended up in May of 1980 so a good five months worth of comic strips and then we will be covering the first Marvel series Star Trek number six which came out September 1980 pretty exciting I am enjoying these uh, these these two different continuities that we're covering here yeah and that... uh, all three publications were pretty good I'm surprised to kind of surprised how good the comic strips were yeah once you get past the you know they have to they have to do a lot of recapping you know because yeah not everybody gets the newspaper every day but uh, aside from that the storylines have been really good yeah quite good so saying that let's just jump straight into comic strip number two entitled the dilithium dilemma which started in January 13th, 1980, and this one ended in March 8th, 1980. And the writer and artist is Thomas Warkington. So we'll start off into the synopsis. So it starts off with picking up right after the last comic strip. So we, uh, the Enterprise is still, um, it's not injured, but it's uh, depleted its dilithium reserves trying to escape from the hollowed-out moon, the last issue. Uh, Ilya calculates that it will take 4.2 years to get to the nearest Federation starbase at Impulse Power. She does, however, say that there is a colony at an abandoned dilithium mine on Forma 4 that is only nine days away. Spock speculates that the mine might have enough dilithium to get the Enterprise to the nearest starbase. So Kirk gives the order and they are on their way. Once they arrive at Forma 4, their scans show that there's some weather satellites in orbit and a Klingon cruiser, which is later identified as the Klingon cruiser Kandar. Uh, 
Aboard the Klingon ship, the Klingons have also picked up the Enterprise and start to speculate that the ship is either disabled since they're coming in on impulse power or that they're faking it. So perhaps uh, Kirk's Corbinite maneuver has spread through all the the galactic gossip circles, so they're not going to fall for any tomfoolery there. So fearing that the Klingons will know of the Enterprise's weakened state, Kirk orders that the last of the dilithium used to make a little micro-jump to Forma 4 at Warp 3. As soon as the Enterprise arrives, the Klingons uh, prepare for battle. Actually, they don't prepare for battle. They just say that they're, uh, they need to contact the survey team, and then the Klingons pretty much turn tail and head off while Kirk contacts the colony. The colonists thank Kirk for scaring the Klingons away, and that that the uh, that the Klingons were also looking for the dilithium. So the the crew does receive permission to come aboard the uh, surface and meet the colonists face to face. While making preparations for the landing team, Sulu makes a personal request and asks for permission to join the team that already consists of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and a new guy called Mining Engineer Ensign. Taskle. Chief Rand informs the captain that the transporters are down due to lack of power, so that the away team then has to travel via shuttlecraft. The team uh, meet with the colonists, and they tell them that they're needing the dilithium. Then the colonists said that, you know, we don't have any, and the Klingons have already looked as well. And then Ensign Taskle believes that there might be an untapped vein shielded by gold or lead, which is kind of a funny comment, because obviously they're making uh, light that gold and lead are worthless in the future that they just want to get to the dilithium underneath. Anyways, meanwhile, there's still some Klingons hidden about uh, the mine and they're eavesdropping with some old, like, 1950s-esque spy equipment, which we'll talk about later. As the rest of the crew head into the mine, Sulu and McCoy are offered a guided tour of the flora and fauna of the planet. Uh, As they head out on a small boat, the Klingons continue to watch a bit, uh, and then they say that they have a plan to try to catch the captain and ignore the the two on the botany tour. As uh, Spock and Taskel admits that there is no dilithium, Scotty informs Kirk that the Klingon ship has actually returned, and uh, but it's keeping a good distance away from the ship. As the crew is about to depart the mine, Spock hears the cries of a baby human deep inside the mine. So the away team head back in, and they find the little baby tied up. And as they're untying the baby, they're ambushed by about a half a dozen Klingons. One of the Klingons refers to himself as First Officer Koth, claims that he will spare the crew's lives in exchange for some dilithium that he knows that the Enterprise has in reserves. Uh, Kirk tells the Klingon that uh, they'll not be able to make any trade. And then we get a shot of Sulu and McCoy uh, on their tour, and they stumble across an old abandoned Klingon vessel. They're told that that the vessel's been there for years, and and the woman that's given them the tour says that it's been there before she was even born. So this is an old ship. Uh, Back in the mine, the Klingons start to torture Kirk to try to get him to tell them where some dilithium is, because, again, they assume that the Enterprise has some. Spock starts to pull a little bit of a bluff, saying that, telling the Klingons that there is some um, dilithium in some little electrical boxes that are actually storage boxes. But before the Klingons uh, fully fall for this trick, McCoy calls in and tells them about the cruiser and that there's dilithium aboard the cruiser. So, realizing that he's being tricked, Koth starts to kill the hostages 
but Spock's able to disable the lights, and then in the pitch darkness, they're able to escape. Uh, as they reach daylight and they see the the shuttle that they came in on has been destroyed, and that they try to need, they need to try to make it to the colony to try to radio Scotty. Meanwhile, Scotty uses the last of the phaser power uh, to beam the dilithium from the wrecked Klingon ship back to the ship. And then as soon as he gets it, he starts uh, using the dilithium to beam down Chekhov and his security team. Kirk and company arrive at the colony and find that it's been ransacked by Klingons as well. Now they're on a race to get to the wrecking cruiser before the Klingons are able to uh, ambush McCoy and Sulu. On the Enterprise, Scotty is contacted by the Klingon captain Kordash, who tells him that about Kirk's capture and says that he will kill the hostages unless Scotty gives him the reserve dilithium. Uh, Scotty tells them that he will fight them uh, before he gives them anything. So obviously, neither one of them know that Kirk's already escaped. Uh, back at the wrecked, wrecked cruiser, the Klingons have McCoy and Sulu and their guide pinned down with some phaser attack. As the McCoy and Sulu are hiding behind a rock, suddenly the attack stops, and they look around and they see that Chekhov and his security team was able to beam behind the Klingons and, and uh, uh, overcome them. So Kirk soon arrives, and there's a brief discussion that the Klingon commander about breaking the treaty. I'm assuming that's the Organian Treaty. Koth is not afraid of any Federation trial. Kirk tells him that uh, he has something else in mind. So then we're back on the ship. Chekhov uh, states the obvious that Kirk should not be on away missions, very similar to what Riker will say in Next Generation at one point. Kirk contacts Captain Kordosh and tells him that he's sending an escape pod with the Klingon captives and a small amount of dilithium to get them home. Uh, but instead of bringing the pod in, the Klingons destroy it. Kirk speculates that the reason for this is that the Klingons assumed it was a trap. Uh, the Klingons then turn around and start heading back to Quonos at impulse power. And then that's the end of the story. So it was a pretty good one, I thought. I thought it was good, too. I thought it had uh, good action, suspense, a little romance. And romance. And at the end, a surprise ending. And a little irony. Where was the romance? I missed that part. There was the uh, the budding romance of something going on between Sulu and the colony check, which, of course, we know in the end wouldn't have worked out. But, uh, yes. Yeah, long-distance long distance relationships never work out. Oh, is that why? Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, yeah of course. Plus, Sulu... I mean, that kind of brings up a good point. In Star Trek Generations, it's established out of nowhere that Sulu has a daughter that's old enough to be a navigator on the Enterprise B. But yep. does that mean that Sulu was married at one point? Because it's I think, never mentioned ever. Exactly. But it, uh, that's exactly what they said. They basically, I mean, didn't Kirk say something like, how did Sulu juggle a career and a family? Does he say that or does he just say, when did he have time for a daughter? And then Chekhov says something like, he made the You time. make the time. So, yeah. Right. But I don't remember well, maybe them I'm ever filling talking a little about bit a in, life. but obviously. Yeah. Well, what'd well, you, what'd they clone her? I mean, no, 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 no. I assume, I assume it was a wife too, but it never says. It could just be a a love child. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Many possibilities. Even more but, in the future. Right, but anyways, obviously that continuity did not exist when this was written, and uh, but I did not catch the the romance part when when I was reading this. I just thought yes. she was a good 
good guide to her, and he was she very was. receptive. And they were, uh, they were both <laughs> very interested in botany and flowers and stuff, which I was thinking, man, Sulu likes flowers. Hmm, go figure. But then, like at the end, uh, she's saying, sorry I couldn't give you the full tour, Sulu, but if you're ever in the neighborhood again... Oh, yeah, that's right. She does say that. And then, uh, and there's another spot where uh, McCoy is thinking, oh, the youth or something like that. Yeah, I guess you're right. It, it didn't have much time to, to blossom or anything, but there's a little bit there. Right. A little bit of possibilities there. Yep, yep. And then also I like, I mentioned a little bit of irony at the end. I really liked uh, Spock's observation about human nature, where he basically says that humans and Klingons both expect other people to think like them. So in the very end, where the humans send back the Klingons, even with the dilithium to get them home, automatically the Klingons thought it was going to be a bomb or something and blow them up. Right. So and that's why they blew up the shuttle, or the pod, rather. Right. So, um, yeah, the humans thought the Klingons would, would not think that, and of course the Klingons completely thought the way they think, which is that... If something is, is is sent their way, uh, they're gonna blow it up, right? So, but isn't that kind of in the in the original series? And I don't remember what episode or anything. But don't they at, at one point refuse help, even though it's gonna help them just for you know pride or whatever? So, I mean, I know that Kirk says that you know they they blew up that ship just because they thought it was a trek. But you know, when it happened, I was like, man, they're uh, they're really, I mean, they're that prideful that they won't even accept help. And I, and I was thinking that that was the, the reason why they did it. That probably did happen. But my main point is their observation about them thinking that the others think like them. Right. So that, I mean, that's the main bit. Gotcha. Uh, Kirk is saying they were so suspicious they killed their own people rather than risk a trap. And then McCoy says Klingons expect others to think as they do. And then Spock says... Only Klingons, Doctor. So, it is true. I mean, that, that that was my main point. I just thought that was a, a pretty pretty cool little little thing at the end. Yeah, I see it. I see what you're saying now. In, instead of ending it with the uh, with the little joke and everybody goes with a with a forced laugh, ha 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 ha. They ended up with a little little quick twist and uh, observation on human. And and it's a very uh, very true. I mean. People do just assume that other people and other nationalities will think and do things the way they do. Exactly. Sad but true. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I got thought they got rid of all the dilithium stuff with the new movies. I mean, did, did they even mention dilithium crystals in any of the original uh, cast movies? I can't, and they, I can't and, remember it being... I don't remember if it was just an offhanded comment or something, uh, but I never remember them saying that it didn't exist. Right, but and then then they certainly got, got rid of all the garbage in Star Trek Next Generation. So I just I just thought the whole dilithium crystal thing was always a a cheap mechanism to uh, cause troubles for the crew, and I'm just I'm just glad to see them rid of it from the movies forward. Uh, and I just, you know, just like, oh boy, oh, dilithium crystals again. Great. Okay. Now, are you saying that they never used dilithium crystals after? I'm in saying the, they never the mentioned generation? them. They, 
Um, I never remember dilithium crystals ever being mentioned in Next Gen. Huh. Uh, you... <laughs> I thought they were, but, but I can't remember specifics. Yeah, I always thought it was a cheap mechanism, personally. So I was happy when I do not recall ever hearing them mentioned again in Next Gen. Thumbs up. And I don't remember them mentioning it in Enterprise, either. Hmm. Did they? Uh, they might have. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they ever actually explained it or anything. I mean, they don't explain it in Star Trek First Contact that that there's dilithium in the, the Phoenix. So obviously right. it's not the only way to achieve warp. Exactly. I mean, they couldn't have because unless, unless it came in an asteroid or something. Because we never went anywhere at that point. Yeah. To find now, any. I thought that they used dilithium in... in the next generation, but I thought it was more of like a, a synthetic or a synthetic uh, dilithium, that they didn't actually have to mine it or anything. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. But yeah, I don't I, remember it. I, I just remember it in far too many of the original Trek, Trek stories. Yeah, now, as far as the movies go, when they were on Earth, in that Klingon ship, didn't yeah. they say something about the dilithium? They had to do something with the dilithium to get to get enough power to to be able to slingshot around the sun again, or something like that. Star Trek Four. Yeah. Um, I don't remember that being mentioned. Yeah, like I said, I think it was just, I think it was probably just like an offhanded comment, but but I mean, it doesn't really matter. I I get what you're saying. I mean, they don't use it as a a crutch anymore. After the the original series, I mean, right? He's not, right. you know, doing the cold fusion startup or whatever like he did a couple times in the old show, <laughs> right? Also, just quickly because I'll let you talk now, Ilya. Yeah, she's back. Ilya's again. She's dead. <clears throat> so, but she she she's there in the beginning of the comic. Yeah, I think this yeah. might be the last time we <clears throat> see her because we don't see her in part three or issue number or. Series arc number three, and she's only right. in the first couple issues or first couple of days worth of this one. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I think in the doesn't she get replaced by like a lizard person later? I guess we'll talk about it later. But I think later on we see her being replaced by a a lizard man. Oh, like that little little lizard uh, dinosaur kind of looking. Yeah. Person? I forgot. Is that in the Marvel one or is that in the comic strip? I think it's in the comic strip because I think I just saw that today. Oh, okay. And I was reading the comic strips today. But in regards to Ilya, I did like how she said that they were four light years away from a the nearest star base, which I thought kind of made sense because, you know, Alpha Centauri is the closest star to us and it's about four light years away. Right. So if you were traveling at, you know, right at the speed of light, which I'm assuming is a, you know, Impulse, you can't go faster than light, but I'm assuming you're probably getting close to it. So it would take, you know, at least four years to get there. I thought that was cool because you don't, aside from Voyager, you don't ever really get the sense that anything's really that far from anything else in Star Trek. Right. TV shows. I agree. I like that part too. (coughs) Another thing that that just perplexed me was um, they talked about, since you're mentioning this, they they talked about their path and their star base is through the Romulan slash Klingon neutral zone. How does that work? 
Okay, I assume the Romulan Klingon zone, neutral zone, is a neutral zone between Romulan and Klingon empires. Yeah, that's what I would assume. So. Okay, so if that is a boundary between Romulan and Klingon space, and then you've got Federation space, which is a third chunk of space, how do you have a part of Federation space that is is uh, in a straight line is uh, is blocked by a, by the Romulan and Klingon space? I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to visualize that. I just yeah. don't know how that would work. Yeah, I don't know how it would work either. Cause, yeah, because the Romulan Empire, yeah. Well, I think there is a Romulan. The Romulan Empire does butt, butt up against the Klingon Empire, but the Federation kind of goes up against both of them. So I don't right. know if we're talking about something right, you know, where the three merge together. But yeah, I don't see why that moon that they were in in the previous issue with the the little people. I don't know why that would be on the other side of both borders so that now you have to go over both the Klingon and the Romulan border to get back right. to the Federation starbase. It is a nit. I just wondered how that worked. No, it was a good nit because uh, I was wondering the same thing. But I didn't bother to go look up a star map or anything to see how that worked. <laughs> <laughs> Which you'd see right there, the clear boundary, Klingons, Romulans, you'd see it. Now, what I thought was weird is that they actually mentioned the Romulans at all, because yeah, why bother? It, well, not only that, but in you know the Marvel has the license for Star Trek right now and is publishing the comic books, and I'm pretty sure that in one of the first couple of issues in their little letters column, they flat out said, you know, we only have the rights to Star Trek the motion picture, we can't continue any story or bring up any species that was not actually already in Star. Trek the motion picture. Oh, that's weird. So that meant Romulan. So the, all right. all all their comic book series could really focus on was you know news stories, or Klingons, or the Federation, or V'ger. I guess if they really wanted to try to bring it back, but you know they couldn't bring in Romulans. They couldn't bring in um, any of the other uh, species that was in Andorians? the show. Andorians? None. I guess not. I Good mean, Lord. According to well, I don't know. They had Andorians uh, in Star Trek the Motion Picture, so I, I guess they could bring those. Oh, like in the background. Yeah, in the, in the background. Oh, hmm. yeah. So, but there was no Romulans. So, but I just thought it was odd that Star uh, Marvel has this limitation where they couldn't use Romulans or mention them, but uh, the comic strip had no problem. Right. Just just seemed a little odd. Interesting. So, what'd you think about that spy equipment? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. There's a little parabolic dish, and uh, did did the Klingon even have headphones on or something? Yeah, I don't know. He, he, had big, did... he had big gigantic headphones on and this big <laughs> like dish thing. Yeah, it's really old fashioned. <laughs> yeah, it, it it does look like something that dropped out of uh, Get Smart or something, or even some of the old James Bond stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I like to read the old James Bond books where they're talking about the spy equipment and. You know, it sounds so archaic now. Right. They're talking about, oh, look, behind the chimney, there's this big, thick wire that goes up to the, you know, that goes up to a a, a room above us. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> that's so Wireless, old baby. school. That's Wireless. so old school. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was just... Although, 
Although I will say the old TV series Danger Man, at least it was Danger Man in, in, in Britain, and uh, Secret Agent Man here in the States, they did have some clever little bits of kit that John Drake used, even though it was all kind of, you know, old old stuff. It's still, you know, they had some clever stuff. I don't know what Danger Man was. Uh, you, 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 have you, so you've never seen Secret Agent Man? Uh-uh. I've heard the song. Sure, well that's, it came from the TV series. Is that right? I didn't know that. Secret Agent Man. You know that thing? Yeah. That was from a TV show. That's the song. That's it. And it's from a TV show. An excellent TV show, in fact. Oh. If you like some of the, um, kind of intricate intrigue and things that we will uh, see in the upcoming issues we're going to review here next. Yeah. You know, a lot of very clever stuff was done in the Secret Agent Man uh, series. Huh. Which, oddly enough, had the title of Danger Man in Britain. That's weird. I like Secret Agent Man better. Oh, a lot better. And it was the actually the same show with same the same show. actors? I mean, they, they uh, just re- retitled it? Yeah, exactly. Patrick McGowan. So, The Prisoner... Huh. So, Secret Agent Man was the series uh, Patrick McGowan was in before The Prisoner. Gotcha. And did this all come out before um, Roger Moore's The Saint? No, they were. I think they, they were. They were contemporaries. I mean, they both were on roughly the same time. Gotcha. They both were in black and white and transitioned to color, and uh, you know, they were all coming out around the. I. I, I at least I think they came out after the James Bond uh, phenomenon uh, was out there. Right. From Dr. No on. Uh, well, anyway, it was early 60s, early to mid-60s. Huh. So you think I should look them up since I like James Bond or give you them should, a pass? Man. You should, man. Huh? Sh- oh, no. No, no. You should definitely uh, check out uh, John, The Adventures of John Drake. But back to Star Trek. Gotcha. So uh, my last note, or actually I have two more notes. Uh, one is the when the Klingons are torturing Kirk after they save the little tied up baby, which which I'm going <laughs> to say right now, the tied up baby was just wrong. <laughs> well, they're dastardly Klingons. Dude, they they had these leather straps all over the baby's arms and legs. Just, yeah, I know. You didn't need to do that. The baby would have cried in the dark anyways. You didn't have to bind his hands and feet. Yeah, well, you don't want him to get away. <laughs> or, or or maybe knock your weapon out of your hand and use it on you. Uh, all right. Well, I guess you're right. They, they are nasty fellers, those Klingons. But uh, when they're torturing Kirk, Kirk, I don't know. I'm having a hard time with his name. When they're torturing Kirk, they're using this little device called an agonizer. Yep. Now, isn't that... Well, something they had in Star Trek the original series but it was in the mirror universe right and that um, how it, Kirk controlled people on the on the mirror enterprise the ISS enterprise with that little agonizer thing I don't remember that oh, okay I mean I, I I know about Chris uh, Kirk's uh, remote control you know destroy people thing but I don't remember that. Uh, I do remember the agonizer from the original series, but I don't remember the exact details or who was wielding it. But it sure makes it sound like it was a Klingon weapon. Yeah. Well, yeah, in this one it definitely does. But I'm yeah. I don't know. I don't remember the original Klingons ever having something like that. No, I don't. I don't really either. Mm. And then the last one I had was the uh, the mineral guy 
Ensign, uh, I forgot his name. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? His name is Ensign Taskel. Which is a very uh, human name sounding thing. You think but... his first name is Eddie? Eddie Taskel? <laughs> Close. Anyways, so he, they call him a, uh, his species name is an Arcturian. Yeah. Which are there are these these guys that kind of have like melted faces a little bit. Exactly. Looks more yeah. like a uh, like a villain on on um, Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Yes. What prune face was that him? Oh yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, like that, that was a name prune face. But but anyways, uh, this Arcurian guy. They there was one <laughs> on the uh, on the Enterprise in Star Trek the Motion Picture. So I guess that's why they got to use him. Cool. But he, cool. But he was a background character. I don't. I don't know if he should have been a, a foreground character because it looks a little silly. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't look that good. I'll also mention to you that uh, according to Memory Alpha, the Agonizer was a small device worn on the belts of Imperial personnel in the Mirror Universe. Ah. So you're a hundred percent right, Donovan. Yeah. So. So how did the Klingons get it? Did they go to the Mirror Universe? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know, but they're dastardly. They're Klingons. They could have came up with something. And they just happened to use the same name. I don't know. That's a good. That's a good point that I just made, boy. I am. You I am did. on fire today. You are. On, oh my god. <laughs> I'm not worthy. <laughs> but I do. You know, this is this is another nitpicky thing. But uh, Deep Space Nine, they end up going to the Mirror Universe. Right. Original series goes to the Mirror Universe. In different comic books, you know, other enterprises go to the Mirror Universe, but does the Klingons ever go to the Mirror Universe? And, I mean, why is it always a Federation ship that gets in an accident that ends up over there? Good Lord, I think you're right. So what if they did go to the Mirror Universe, and the only thing they brought back was the Antagonizer? (laughs) Antagonizer? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that's... That's completely different. The agonizer. agonizer. Right. <laughs> uh, I well, just, I just quenched maybe they my brought own back thing. the antagonizer, and when they got got sick of the verbal abuse, they made an agonizer. <laughs> maybe that's what it was. Maybe. Uh, I like the new shuttle design that they used, so that's good. Which I think was from the. It looked. Yeah. So it was. It was good that they used the. Uh, the newer shuttle design I, that I that looks like it was the like the one from the movie. Um, yeah, I like the one that Scotty and them floated around in. Right. Yeah, it's so, much more compact. Yeah, no outboard nacelles. Right. So that's that's what I was getting at when when we talked about this a while back. Is that there were, I think that this shuttlecraft was only supposed to be from the ship to the surface. And then there was like a warp sled or something that that would actually fit onto if you were going to go any distance. Oh. Which this, so, this one obviously didn't because it's just like a little pod. So kind of like Obi-Wan's Jedi fighter? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the, the same thing. In the second movie? Right. Oh. It actually reminds me a little bit more of the pods they use in Enterprise. Yeah, it looks just, yeah, it looks just like it. Yeah. Only, uh, actually, this looks a little sleeker, at least in the front. Yep. No arguments. But I think overall, the the artwork in this is really good. I, mean, I think it is, too. 
And actually, we'll get to the the real McCoy one eventually. I think the artwork's really good there, especially in in DeForest Kelly's face. But I don't want to jump the gun too much. Right. But I mean, I think all the ships look. I mean, I think some of the spaceships and stuff in this in this first one are probably some of the best pictures of the Enterprise that I've seen. Yep. And you and you got to think that you know these were just printed cheaply on you know the the thinnest paper imaginable. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So uh, I'm I'm pretty impressed with this this artwork. Right. So aside from that, that's that's all I have. Any anything else for the uh, dilithium <laughs> dilemma? Not really. I liked it. So I, I hope that this is not the last time I see Ilya because I like her. But uh, I think it might be, and it probably should be uh, since she's supposed be. to be dead. The uh, the discontinuity of it is most upsetting. So does it take you out of the story? <laughs> no, I can live with it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Shall so, we move on? Let's do. So our next bit of literary-ness for the day is issue number six, Star Trek Untold Stories, published date September 1980. Actually, I want to correct you. It's not Star oh. Trek Untold Stories. Untold Stories. That was that's the second Marvel series that we were we read the first issue of last week. This is just ah. Star Trek. Ah, it's a little confusing. Good point. Good point. Thank you, D. Okay, so um, creative team. They did something a little cutesy here. Uh, they didn't go with the tr- traditional labels of people, so I'm going to tell you exactly what they told us in the in the issue. The ship's log compiler was Mike W. Barr. I figured the writer. Visual engineering techs first class, Dave Cockrum and Klaus Jansen. We have the recorder uh, being Rick Parker, and the U technician as Gaff. Just Gaff. Although apparently the, the real name of that person is Carl Gafford. Uh, historian first class is Marion Stensgard. The captain is Luis Jones. Or Louis jo- Jones. Yeah. I assume editor. And then the fleet admiral is Jim Shooter. Assuming the editor-in-chief. Okay, so the uh, cover shows the Enterprise with a visible transporter beam between it and, the, and a planet's surface. Two pictures of an alien lie between the planet and the Enterprise. The first picture shows the caped alien upright with his mouth open. The second picture shows him falling forward to the ground with a knife in his back. The text boxes tell us the alien is Ambassador Frau, who was alive when beamed up from the planet's surface, and dead when he arrived at the Enterprise. How did this impossible event take place? Hmm... Inside the book, the first page is a full-page panel with Spock and Kirk entering quickly from the left into the transporter room, saying the transporter was working fine an hour ago. Transporter Chief Rand, yes, Rand, responds that it's not the transporter's fault, but the ambassador's signal is breaking up. Scotty is at her side, feverishly working to not lose the ambassador. In full-block lettering, is the word Enterprise, followed by a monstrously stylized font completing the title, Murder Case. Enterprise Murder Case. Kirk states how the loss of the ambassador would jeopardize the years of negotiation that finally convinced Yanad 
6 to join the Federation. Kirk is agitated, saying that pulling the ambassador through safely is a top priority. They cannot afford any slip-ups this time. Scotty reports the ambassador is finally coming through, but Mr. Scott's elation turns sour as the ambassador's freshly reassembled body slumps forward with a large knife in his back. The folks at the ambassador's departure point are incredulous over the report that the ambassador arrived stabbed and dead. How could this have happened? Kirk orders McCoy to do an autopsy and Spock to investigate, while Kirk takes a call from the surface. McCoy reports the ambassador was transported up five minutes ago, but he died more like 15 minutes ago. While reviewing video of the ambassador's beam-up, Spock states he sees a discrepancy that can only have one explanation. Kirk's conversation with Prince Storff and Princess Minax does not go well. They say any agreements made to date involving their joining the Federation is non-binding until they get a satisfactory explanation as to Ambassador Frawl's death. They explain that there are rebels among them who want to join the Klingon Empire, so they suggest that all Enterprise crew on the planet leave for their own safety. Finally, they state that their personal mistrust comes from the fact that Ambassador Frawl was at one time in the line of succession to the throne of Yanat VI, but changed his name from Prince Arlf in accordance with tradition when he could not ascend to the throne. The conversation ends, and Ohura asks Kirk why he appeared so shocked to hear the name Arlf. I hate saying that. Kirk snaps back, telling her to attend to her own business. Meanwhile, back in a bar on Yanad 6, Chekhov, Sulu, and a female crew member named DeFalco get into a fight in the bar when some patrons blame them for Ambassador Frawl's death. An emergency recall signal comes down through their communicators and the trio beam back to the Enterprise. On the Enterprise bridge, Kirk is conversing with Admiral Fitzpatrick who states his faith in Kirk's judgment on the matter and tells him if possible to maintain friendly relations. The Admiral, then Kirk, and Spock call Kirk on his edgy, short-tempered behavior since the Ambassador's death. Kirk finally tells the story of his first visit to Yanat 6, when he was an ensign on the Republic, the ugliest ship in the fleet. The Federation was called in to help retrieve a kidnapped Prince Arlf by rebels backed by the Klingon Empire. Kirk led one of the teams dispatched to the surface. Kirk told his men to avoid attacking the rebels and focus on retrieving the prince. During the skirmish to retrieve the prince, Kirk's phaser fire accidentally hits the prince of all people. The phaser fire puts Prince Arlf into a long-lasting coma that kept him from ascending to the throne. Arlf's younger brother became ruler instead. The brother claimed friendship, to- claimed friendship toward the Federation but pledged never to join it. Years later, Arlf woke. When Arlf woke, he bitterly stated that Kirk would pay for taking the throne from him. Kirk lived with the guilt of this all these years. Kirk states that when the king died, his children reopened negotiations for Federation admission. Kirk states that whoever the killer is, they are likely to ruin his career and permanently stop Yanat Six's entrance into the Federation. 
in one fell swoop. And Kirk has no idea who the killer is. Spock shocks everyone when he says he knows who the killer is. Sherlock Spock explains. The autopsy stated the body that arrived at the Enterprise was dead for ten minutes before beaming up. But that can't be the ambassador because witnesses confirm he was alive at that time. Spock states the body that arrived was a duplicate of Arlf and that he is still alive. He goes on to show photo comparisons of the ambassador and points out a missing ring from the left hand of the man that arrived on the Enterprise. He concludes the real ambassador kept the ring for personal reasons and wants people to think he is dead. They conclude they must find the plastic surgeon that made the imposter look like Arlf, but realize it would be a needle in the haystack. A crewman who was on the surface states that Dr. LaRoque was mentioned by the rebels during the bar brawl when an injury occurred. Based on that extremely thin lead, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to beam down to the planet in native disguises to find the doctor and Prince Arlf. They are turned away at the doctor's door, so they break in and are confronted by a gun-wielding female Dr. LaRoque who herself is shot from behind. McCoy stays behind to examine the the stricken doctor and states one of his greatest lines. She's dead, Jim. Spock and Kirk run after the murderer and find three men, any one of whom could have pulled the trigger. Meanwhile, the authorities bust into the house and seize McCoy, who was at the dead lady's side. Minutes later, all the characters are gathered in a room, including Prince Storff and Prince, Princess Minax, for the moment of truth. Kirk is accused of direct involvement of killing the two people. Kirk counters, saying, Number one, Arlf is alive and killed by Dr. LaRoque to protect his new identity and appearance. He was involved with the rebels, so he covered his tracks well. And finally, he is, in fact, in the room. The prince says he's full of it and demands proof of his assertions. Spock provides it by saying his magical telepathic powers have not only picked out the real Arlf, but also how the murder was committed. During the transportation, the real ambassador was substituted for a poor unfortunate, surgically altered to look like the ambassador. To keep the switch from being detected, the ship's automated recording was interrupted by Arlf's henchman, who shot a pulse of energy at the Enterprise, which disrupted instruments. Spock explains the ambassador had amassed considerable wealth, even for a member of royalty. He saw this as an opportunity to escape with his ill-gotten wealth. Though he was working with the rebels, he served no one but himself. This plan also allowed him to discredit Captain Kirk, who he bitterly blamed for his aborted ascension to the throne. In summary, Spock begins to point out which of the three is the ambassador when Arlf exposes himself by grabbing a guard's gun and the princess. He demands clear passage for his hostage's safety. When not looking, Dr. McCoy hypos him with a powerful anesthetic. Case closed. Arlf is in custody. Prince Storff says he and his sister will sign the Federation of Mission papers and the trio beam back to the Enterprise. Aboard the Enterprise, Spock admits he bluffed with the telepathic powers thing in hopes of flushing out the real Arlf. 
Kirk thanks Spock and McCoy's excellent Holmes and Watson work. They warp off to their next adventure. So, I'm sorry that synopsis was really long, but there was a lot of details going on. It's, it's a murder mystery, and if you don't get all the details in there, it ends up not making any sense. So, right. There you go. Yep. So, it was pretty good. Yeah, I think it was pretty good. I mean, it, you know, I, th- I, think it was, uh, I think it was a satisfying murder mystery story. It stretched credibility uh, in a few places, but I, I really do like it when Spock and McCoy do the Sherlock Holmes thing. Right. And speaking of Sherlock Holmes, uh, as you mentioned in, I think, episode number two or three, that Spock makes a reference that he's actually related to Sherlock Holmes or something. Uh, uh, he, he insinuates that Holmes or Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle, whatever, is a distant relative of his in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Yeah, so when we did that recording, I, I did not remember that, but since then I've I've looked it up and, and watched the show. So, yeah, so it, it seems like he's talking about, he just says an, ancest, an ancestor of mine once said, and then he quotes, he quotes uh, Sherlock Holmes. Right. So it doesn't actually so, say... Arthur Cannon Doyle, I suppose. Right. But So, anyways, I just thought that was funny because it reminded me of my uh, ignorance at the time of that last recording that I did not know that. Well, there are tons of uh, blockages and uh, little gaps in all of our, uh, our, our expertise. Although I must say, uh, I think we both know a fair amount of stuff about the Star Trek universe. Yeah, but I to don't pat, th- to pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. Although uh, obviously we make mistakes too, but and I don't think I think uh, yeah, neither one of us have ever said we know everything. Although we may think it on occasion. Yeah, but I don't tell anybody that because I <laughs> I don't want them to know how good I am. <laughs> so before or for them to know how how good I think I am. No, I am. I am that good. <laughs> Before we get into the the story, I I just wanted to mention the uh, the writer Mike Barr. Mm-hmm. So he's written quite a few Star Trek stuff. He wrote the the Haunting of the Enterprise that we did like in episode five. Oh. Uh, he did this one, and he'll do another one uh, later in this series. Uh, he does issue number seventeen, but he wrote a lot of the first Star Trek, the original series, series that DC Comics put out, including the adaptation of Star Trek 3 and 4, but he also did the two annuals that we've done. So he wrote all these things, all those years ago, and he wrote The Final Voyage. Oh. And then he's also wrote a lot of the, or at least the first six of the Deep Space Nine monthly series that Malibu Comics did. So we read the first three, the Stowaway oh. two-parter and that Old Wounds. Right. So it's just kind of cool that you know we've read a lot of his stuff already, and but but he has written quite a bit more. So I really like him. I I mean yeah, you know yeah. like we said when we when we were uh, reading all those good things and the final voyage, the annual number one and two. He knows his Star Trek, and he he I think he does a pretty good job of tying some some loose ends uh, with other loose ends to kind of make a cohesive story. You know from different. Genre, from different, you know, loose loose ends from different storylines that you know were were in the old show, right? 
Cool. So yeah, so I, I was happy, and and I think he did a good job in this one. Like he brought up the uh, the Republic. You know, you you said it was the ugliest ship in the in the Federation, but uh, <laughs> it is. But I, I I agree with you. I agree with you. It's it's a weird looking. It looks kind of like a Constitution class ship, except the nacelles and the the engineering section are on a flat plane together. Right. And there's like two bars, like like two doll rods coming out, joining uh, the the nacelles. Yeah, instead of that, two each. Yeah, instead into of the engineering section. Yeah, instead of just one sleek arm, it's right. it's two bars. I don't think it looks horrible, but it's oh. it's not as streamlined oh. as even the old Enterprise. But I think that's it, what they were going for. That he, you know, his first well, job but, was not the flagship of the Federation. And that's fine. It's just that I mean. Let's look at Enterprise, the TV series. I mean, that was nice looking. I mean, it was different. You mean the Enterprise from from Enterprise? From the TV show. Yeah, the TV show. Yeah. Enterprise. But... Or Star Trek Enterprise, right. whatever. But originally it was Enterprise. I mean, you, you can have a ship look like like earlier in time or whatever uh, without having it look fugly. Yeah. It's, it's just really not attractive at all. Well, Enterprise had the advantage of being made, you know, 20 years after this comic book. <laughs> well, okay. But, no, but, I get what you're saying. Mm. I just, I didn't think. I just think they could have done something a little nicer with it without making it look, uh, poopy. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the nacelles, they kind of look more like a, they have like a kaleidoscoping effect. So it looks like there's like little sections that are kind of like, you know, coming out of the section before instead of one streamlined-looking nacelle. Right. Yeah, it, it's odd, and it's a little clunky-looking, but I kind of like that it didn't just look like an, a ship we've seen before. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but if you look at any of the uh, Star Trek history on Captain Kirk, right. it always talks about how he went immediately to the Farragut and things like that. But, so when I first read this, I was like, Oh man, what's this Republic business? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then I, because I, I always remember the Farragut being his first ship. But then right. uh, there was an, an original series episode called Court Martial. And in that he, and I remember the episode after, you know, I looked it up on Memory Alpha. But in that episode, it talks about Kirk being an ensign and serving aboard, forgot his name. Uh, but he actually serves with this guy on the Republic. And uh, to my knowledge, that's the only mention that it's ever oh, that wow. they've ever mentioned the Republic as being a ship Captain Kirk's served on. Man, that's a great piece of trivia. I know. I thought it was great. I was like, because at first I was wow. like, oh man, this this Mike Barr, he he screwed up. There's no there's no such thing. As the <laughs> right. And then I was like, oh wait, he got me. Wow. He knows. I'll have to. Well, I'd like to go back and watch. I mean, I haven't seen that episode in ages. Was that a first season episode? Uh, That's a really old one. Yeah, but it's the, it's the one where he's on trial because right. he killed somebody or allowed right. somebody to die. Right. But Interesting. Yeah, but anyways, I thought that was a nice continuity tie-in that, uh, you know, you didn't even need that really for the storyline. For the story itself, no, but... it, didn't, it wasn't needed, but it was nice to have. Oh. Yeah, and, and especially since, you know, he's supposed to be an ensign fresh out of the academy. If there is a precedent for him being on a ship really early in his career, why not use it? 
Now wait a minute, hold on. What'd you just say? You're saying that when you when you're a third year cadet at Starfleet, they don't automatically give you the captaincy of the flagship of the Enterprise of the Federation? Uh okay, unless you're in the movie, the two thousand nine movie. Yes, you're oh, right. That's not... well, unless you save oh, I don't know, the entire Federation and the planet Earth. Hey, I'd give I'd, I'd give him a ship. Oh, okay. So it was just a bone they were throwing in because he did a good job. Like, because he saved everybody. Yeah, but really, did he do anything? It was <laughs> it was really Spock, a lot of it was Spock. Old Spock, <laughs> a lot of it was giving Spock. them uh, technology that doesn't exist in their timeline. Scotty being able to do the trans trans warp teleportation. Oh sure. And of course, Spock being able to control the the advanced future ship to sever the drilling thing and all that kind of stuff. Right. But they would not have been in that that situation if Kirk didn't keep on pressing. We got to take the fight to Nero. <laughs> no, I just I, I was talking to somebody. Actually, I think it was today that we were they were talking about how good that movie was, and I'm like, yeah, I love that movie. Except they gave except third, <laughs> except they give a third year cadet uh, the whole. The whole ship. I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, take over like he did in the movie. But right. at the end of the movie, they should have, you know. I mean, I know that they had to put him as Captain C because that's what everybody wants to see. Oh, yeah. But I did think it was a little funny that they just, he's just Captain. <laughs> he, yeah, that's it. He hasn't even graduated Starfleet Academy yet, but now he's Captain. Yeah. And in fact, wasn't he suspended pending possibly being drummed out of Starfleet? Exactly. So, whatever. Anyways, all right, we're not talking about that show, so sorry. No. But anyways, about the one more thing about the Sherlock Holmes thing. He does say yeah. that Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character when it was just the issue before where he was talking about how Dracula was oh, that. a legend <laughs> or even kind of a real person. Yeah. So I just thought it was funny that, that Holmes is definitely fictional, but Dracula might have been real. Well, I think that whole haunting of the Enterprise was a low point in his career, writing career. Well, he didn't write the didn't first like issue. That. He wrote the second issue. Well, I don't like it. I, I liked it. I just thought that part was a little comical. Uh, so did you notice the uh, typo on page three? Or at least I think it's a typo. No. Let me go back to page three. Or at least on my copy, it looks like a typo. Um... No. What's the typo? It, let's, we can move this along. Yeah. I'm at the page. Yeah, so on the bottom left-hand page, or left-hand panel, uh-huh. Spock says, and I, Tuck, have encountered a discrepancy. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, I read that over. It's like, huh? Yeah. But it's definitely a C, right? It's not oh, that's, oh, that's that a C. somehow the ink's got rubbed off on or something. No, that looks like a C. Yeah, okay. Just A capital C. Yep. I just thought it was funny. funny. And I'm not really keen on this alien design, I'm going to be honest with you. The purple skin and then the fanned out oh. white hair so that they all look like they're, uh, you know, like Bozo the Clown. <laughs> Except it's a white hair and then this big gigantic exactly. handlebar mustache. Right. They've got huge amounts of hair. Yeah. I mean, these are like the hairiest aliens. Well, they don't have hair on the top of their head. Most of them are bald. Uh, a few of them have hair on the actual but, top, but they all have the Bozo the Clown-looking hairline sure. and then these huge and, mustaches. Exactly. Look at them. They are the biggest mustaches in the world. I mean, this is even bigger than uh, the wizard from uh, Wizard of Oz. I mean, these are big mustaches. 
but and they're just and they got and they got tails. Yeah, I didn't notice the tails until McCoy had to dress up as one, and then he's like, "Oh, right. I'm walking around with a tail. How do you think I feel?" <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that that's nitpicky, I guess, but I just yes, it is not a huge fan. So uh, I I like how Kirk was shown as make as making a really big mistake. I like that because normally, you know, the thing about you know, Star Trek and a lot of science fiction things is all the people they always do the right thing. I mean they, they, they seldom make mistakes. And Kirk made a whopper here in the past. Although I thought it was kinda of, I mean it was unintentionally. I mean it was a it was a it was a phaser shot ricochet <laughs> which is like, oh my God. Okay. So um and by the way <laughs> so a fa- so a phaser beam is gonna ricochet when it hits a mirror? Is that, is that is that what it's supposed to be? Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was supposed it, to be a mirror, but I mean, if it's if it's some sort of concentrated light, that's the only thing that would. Uh, yeah, it's like, man, I just, just just put a mirror ball outfit on when you go into battle. Yeah, no problem. Good point. Anyway, yeah, the only thing I know but, of uh, that, I thought that was kind of can ricochet phaser bolts in the next generation is uh, a transporter beam. Oh. Oh right. The, right. the the other transporter mystery uh, murder mystery was that one where yes. and I can't remember the episode. Where Riker was accused. Yeah, Riker was accused of killing somebody as he was beaming out. Yeah. And come to find out it was somebody was taking a shot at him and the transporter beam somehow ricocheted the uh phaser bolt back into him and killed him. Yeah. Which is silly. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah. But almost as silly as the pink hair that Spock has when he goes undercover in, on the planet. Yeah, in this one. I mean, it looks like it looks like candy stuff you get at a circus or something. Cotton candy. Cotton candy. That's it. Looks like 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 pink cotton candy. Uh, I gotta go find the picture now. Yeah, it's page fifteen. Oh yeah. It does look weird. So, uh, so, so Kirk has blue hair, okay, and McCoy has white hair, which almost looks at least a little normal-ish. Actually, they kind of look like the Three Musketeers, but like gay or something, because they're like all guys weird colors and stuff. Yeah, the 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 like really uh, pink hair. bright blue and bright pink hair. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny is that. Uh, the the woman the doctor what's her name doctor uh, Lorock Lo- doesn't she kind of look like the uh, Avatar woman I mean uh, Sigourney Weaver no the the actual blue girl oh the blue girl uh, I mean she's I'm purple here she's purple with white hair but you know she doesn't quite have the cat like features but it, there's some resemblance or maybe it's just a tail throwing me off I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, before she dies, she kind of looks cat-like, but once she's laying on the ground dead, she looks more human-like. Right. Yeah, we don't really see that much of her, but yeah, yeah, I can see that kind of. Okay, so I thought the three-wheel tank design was pretty cool. So they were showing uh, battle scenes during the rebellion. Yeah, and the flashback when Kirk was young. Right. Right, and they they had a three-wheel tank design that looked kind of cool. I'm not sure exactly how stable it is, but it looks cool. I'll give it points for style. Why wouldn't it? It would be just as staple as a, a tripod. I somehow think that 
I, I, I would feel I would feel more <laughs> I think I'd be feeling more safe with something that's blasting things out of it and stuff, and likely to be blasted at it with something with four wheels, a little more stable, uh, or even better yet, tank treads. But the thing does look fast. It looks like it would be fast. Yeah, I'll give it that much. I hate to be that guy that's standing right in front of it because it shows the guy running, and if it is fast, then that dude is about to get run over. (laughs) But, yeah, no, it's a cool design. Let's see. Um, Yeah, I thought it was interesting in this one and another issue that this is Yanad 6. Uh, which I always assumed when it had a number after it, it was like the sixth planet from from their star. Right. So it was interesting how this story and in another story, the 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 planets that they're visiting are both uh, the sixth from their planet. So uh, if it's a habitable world, which it obviously is, then uh, they probably have a very large uh, star, uh, as opposed to our sun, uh, or all the planets' orbits are very crunched together. Because um, six is pretty far out there. Well, I mean, if the f- first couple of planets, you know, orbiting their their sun is is much smaller. I mean, even smaller than Mercury. I mean, Venus is a pretty big planet. So, you know, that that kind of ex- oh yeah. The, but so maybe if well, instead of a big planet, there's four little, you know, four or five little planets. Yeah, I guess you're right. Six is kind of far out there. I mean, that's like Saturn, Jupiter. Right. I mean. But yeah, it just seems like it's pretty far out there. So maybe the maybe the star is bigger, so it's more intense light and and radiation. I don't know. Yeah, but we I, I yeah. But we we remember in the gold key stuff, there was like the planet was something three hundred and forty two or something like that. You remember that one? Oh, where it was just a number? Yeah, we were talking about it. How you know did that mean that it was the three hundred and forty second? planet from oh. the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously wasn't the case. But. but hey, you know, that was a different universe. So... Yeah, that's right. Or was it... No, a different galaxy? Yeah. No, every, at, at the very least, it was a different galaxy. Yeah, every 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 issue, they went to a different galaxy. Exactly. Pretty far from home. Their ship was fast. Alright. Okay. Pretty good, pretty good. So shall we do your favorite one? Yeah, real quick. Just uh, my biggest nitpick in this episode or issue is they can't do DNA testing in the future. <laughs> I mean, they're like, oh, this might be the ambassador. Dude, just take a little swab of his cheek and you tell me if he's here, if he's the exactly. ambassador. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, there will be a little bit of that here in the next issue, uh, The Real McCoy, um, right? where there's some body swapping a little bit. But at right. least in that one, I think they try to explain it a little bit. But, but in this one, it really struck me. It really struck me in the face that, you know, if Jerry Springer can do it now, why why can't they do DNA testing three hundred years in the future? Right. Of course. When was this written? Nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. Yeah. Which DNA testing was probably not as widely known or widely used, but I, I completely agree. But I mean, as we'll see in the real McCoy, but, I mean. At least there, they tried to acknowledge that you know if you're breaking something down to the subatomic particles and then you're putting it back together, you know you should be able to tell if it was the right person or not. If the patterns match, right? Yeah. So they didn't even didn't even try in that one. Yeah. Well, another thing is, 
they had a technology to shoot a pulse of energy at the Enterprise and wreak that much havoc. I mean, remember all the crap that was going on inside the transporter room at the beginning of the story? Right, yes, they did the the switch. uh, Exactly. And they were able to keep the Enterprise computers from recording the situation. It's like, really? They have the ability to do that? These guys are pretty high-tech. And then for the Enterprise not to realize they were hit by by an energy pulse. Right. So, I mean... Yeah, and, um, and it's, you know, another one of those things where, you know, all the cards just happen to fall in place to make the yep. story kind of fit together with, right. you know, it just happened to be Kurt who just happened to have this, this hate relationship with the prince or whatever. Exactly. Just a lot of coincidences, which exactly. which happens a lot in both the shows and in the comics. Sure. All right. Anything else? No. All right. So Star Trek, the comic book strip number three. So this came out in uh, started in March 9th, 1980, and it finished May 3rd, 1980. And uh, the story arc is entitled The Real McCoy. Kind of a pun, don't you think? A fine one. All right. So the credits are writer and artist Thomas Warkington. So I have a lot easier on the credits than, than you do because we don't know who the editors are, are and things like that. Right. So, anyways, here's the synopsis, and uh, it's going to be a little long-winded because there's a lot of back and forth and people pretending to be other people. So, bear with me, please. So, uh, it starts off with an old chemical propulsion ship heading towards the Taurus system. As it approaches, a young woman who's named Joanne and her robotic companion awake a man that has been in uh, some sort of cryostasis. So, as the man awakens, he starts. Uh, states that he's no longer Anton Zarber. He is now Leonard McCoy. And uh, we get a close-up of his face, and we see that his face is altered into the likenesses of the late 20th century actor DeForest Kelly. Or Dr. McCoy. Yes. That was a joke. You were supposed to laugh hysterically there, Ken. Very sad. Ah! Yeah, yeah. clever. There you go. That's what I was looking for. All right. So the the two humans talk about how Anton about how Anton now has the face of the man that he's going to destroy, and in the background you can hear the music. Bum bum bum. <laughs> All right. So their plan is to lure the Enterprise to the Taurus system to respond to a plague that they're actually going to um, uh, distribute among the colonists, uh, and then he's going to replace himself with the real McCoy. Hence the pun of the name. So, uh, meanwhile, on the Enterprise, the crew is transporting philosopher Xantar back home to Zarin, when, uh, where he plans to convince his planet to succeed from the Federation. So, uh, en route, the Enterprise is ordered to make a side trip to Taurus and provide medical attention to the colony. Uh, Doctor M- Doctors McCoy and Chapel arrive, and they treat the colonists... Uh, the colony leader then tells them that there's a freighter just outside the town uh, that landed there a few days before. Fearing that there might be people aboard there that need help, uh, Chapel and McCoy head over to the freighter where they find a very ill Joanne. Uh, McCoy and Joanne, um, it's established that J- McCoy and Joanne have known each other uh, from many years ago, but we don't know quite what their relationship is. 
Once she is on the mend and feeling better, Joanne requests some time alone with McCoy to catch up. Uh, Chapel leaves the ship to check on the townsfolk, and while she's uh, once she's gone, McCoy is drugged by Anton. Uh, actually, he's drugged by picking up this little uh, keepsake that has a needle in it that drugs him. So basically, he gets drugged, knocked out, and Anton changes changes into his clothes and gives him a truth serum so that he'll give uh, he'll give Anton the information that he needs so that he can blend in with the crew. Uh, Chapel eventually shows back up, and the Anton McCoy fools her. So I'm going to call him Anton McCoy because, as far as everybody knows except for the reader and Joanne, he is McCoy. So when I say Got it. when I say Anton McCoy, that's what I mean. I got it. Gotcha. All right. So he tells her uh, that Joanne and the man in the cryostasis pod uh, will be returning to the ship as well. Uh, once the cryopod is safely aboard the Enterprise and tucked away. Anton McCoy wakes up McCoy, the real McCoy, uh, up long enough to tell him what, why he's doing all this. And uh, he basically tells him that McCoy, uh, or we find out that McCoy and Anton were rivals in medical school, and that McCoy stole the only woman that Anton ever loved away from him. That plus McCoy testified against Anton at some point, and Anton was stripped of his medical license. Now Anton plans to use his McCoy persona to cash in on all the McCoy uh, medical patents and uh, make a fortune. Uh, Anton is called away um, from his James Bond villain scheming when Xantar passes out due to his left heart stopping or slowing. It actually slows down. It actually, his left heart slows down to about like one beat every two minutes. So in all essence, it's it's pretty much stopped. Uh, the crew start to become suspicious uh, when uh, the McCoy, Anton McCoy, uh, does not show concern for the, the patients. Uh, Kirk has asked the crew to start looking into Joanne and Anton's stories uh, and pasts. Uh, Spock finds out that the uh, about the malpractice case that Anton was involved in and that Joanne was the star witness. I'm sorry, and McCoy was the star witness, and then he also finds out that Joanne is none other than McCoy's ex-wife. So there's a lot of past in with those three people. Uh, sometime later, Anton McCoy tells Kirk that he's actually going to resign from Starfleet as soon as they get to the next starbase. Uh, this fuels Kirk's suspicions that something's not quite right. Uh, Xantar's condition starts to worsen, and Anton McCoy... Uh, suggests that uh, an evasive surgical procedure might help him uh, restart the heart. and uh, the, But there's a high likelihood that the procedure itself will kill him. So despite Chapel's misgivings, uh, Anton McCoy pulls rank and they start to plan the procedure. Uh, while Anton McCoy are making preparations to get all the credits from the real McCoy's patents, Chapel confronts Kirk that uh, with some stats from McCoy's life signs over the last few days. It seems that his vital signs have changed drastically. On this news, Spock contacts Rand to get some transporter logs from McCoy's uh, to and from uh, beam up to Taurus. Uh, and, but she's able to confirm that yes, the life signs match that McCoy did beam down and McCoy was beamed back up. Uh, and then Spock and then Spock starts to suspect that the man in the cryo chamber uh, that he that he's been told is Anton might actually be McCoy, 
um, and that would account for why the transporter logs show that he did indeed beam back, uh, back and forth. He and Kirk go back to the cryo chamber where Spock performs a mind meld on the uh, on the coffin, and basically finds out that uh, it is indeed McCoy, and they uh, wake him up. Uh, so, not knowing that Kirk and Spock are with the real McCoy, Joanne confronts Kirk and tells him the truth about um, about what the Anton is doing and what uh, and that you know she may indeed still love McCoy and does not want Anton to kill him once once this is all over. Uh, Kirk tells her that he already knows and places her under arrest. Uh, Kirk attempts to stop Anton from performing the surgery. Uh, while when Anton sees that uh, sees the real McCoy there and sees that his uh, his plan has been foiled, he uh, basically holds Chapel hostage. And during the standoff, Xantar wakes up from his coma and is able to knock out Anton. Um, and it seems that um, Z- actually I called him his name is Xantar, right? So Xantar wakes up, knocks out Anton, and then Xantar tells him that the, his heart only needed to be slowed down so that it could self-repair itself. Uh, but now he's up and about. And then the final shot shows that uh, Xantar is explaining that he's actually going to argue for, um, for his people to stay with the Federation and not succeed. And the reason he gives is that uh, the Federation is filled with so many illogical people, they need the Zartons to help provide a balance. So we kind of end on a joke like we used to in the old show. Yes. So and he also, <clears throat> and he also says, so Kirk then says, you won't get an, an argument from me. And then uh, Zantra says, I'll settle for a game of chess with Mr. Spock. Three-dimensional chess, I'm sure. Oh, of course. Let's throw, let's throw a few more dimensions in there. These guys are smart. <laughs> I mean, look at that big butt brain ahead of his. Yeah, so his head kind of looks like uh, a Bith from Star <clears throat> Wars, one of the you know the cantina guys. Oh, that right, plays right. the music. Right. Except he has the little face mask and breathing apparatus. Mm-hmm. So I guess there was a, a Zartan in... Uh, in Star Trek the motion picture because there was actually a a Zartan action figure when the movie came out but he must have been you know one of those you know if you watch that show because like I said I just watched it the other day there's tons of aliens that are just kind of in the background uh, like during that big orientation scene right and uh, I don't remember this guy in particular so I'm just assuming I must have missed him but I guess he was there. I mean, he was popular enough to get an action figure back in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, I did think it was kind of funny that they breathe. Uh, they had that breathing apparatus similar right. to, um, what is a benzonite or something in Star Trek The Next Generation? Uh, you know, those, oh, those right, blue guys right, right. that had the little breathing apparatus that was kind of always blowing the smoke up in their face. Right. So it's kind of cool. Now that... Now that was a little nicer that uh, they only had to get away with having the uh, the certain gas uh, mixed into the surrounding air, and they could get some of it. This guy having to walk around all the time with the uh, with the breathing apparatus would be a pain. Yeah, but it does kind of look cool. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Having to wear a mask all the time like that, I don't know. Yeah, it's not practical. I mean, it, lo- it, it looks, looks kind of cool. cool, but I mean, but but look at the guy. I mean, he truly has a butt head. 
<laughs> I mean, he's got the two lobes on each side, and he's got the crack there, and, you know, how could he get worse? Let's put a mask on him. Well, I guess they didn't want him to look like a um, Telosian, so they had, oh, they had to Telosian. put the mask on him. Exactly. Well, <laughs> now the Telosians are even worse. Yeah, the Telosians, they look like little old women with big butt heads. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Huge buttheads. Uh, now these are just big. Those th- those are big butts, uh, theologians. <laughs> heads. But anyways, I I I, I kind of I, like, I dig the I dig the mask on these guys. So I mean it's it's a little dated. I mean this came out in or it was a mask that was built for a background character in, in a movie for 1979. So right. But still, could could have been worse. Could have been raining. So the the chemical propulsion ship they were in, mm-hmm. which, quite frankly, <laughs> if you were a chemical propulsion ship, you'd be going sub, sub, sub light. So you wouldn't be going very far. But the Scorpion, Scorpion, Scorpio? Scorpius. Scorpius, there you go. Right. So the Scorpius ship, I can't really see it be, being chemical driven. Hate to be... Uh, a pain in the butt about it, but it also says it's clearing the Andorian asteroid belt. So they're coming from Andoria. Yeah, that's what I couldn't quite figure out either. And it said that they're on their they're a day out from Tarsus too. Right. So yeah, that doesn't make sense if they were going sublight and they were going to be able to go from Andoria to Tarsus too in in one day. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't know why they made it a chemical propulsion ship, but I'm sure they weren't insinuating that it couldn't go warp. Otherwise, you wouldn't get anywhere. Right. I'm just saying, chemical propulsion, really. How Apollo of it. But, uh, you know, at the beginning, she has this little robot companion, but when they leave Taurus too, I guess they just leave the robot there, because he's never... Sh- they never show him after the, that first little bit where uh, Anton wakes up. Yeah, they leave the ship, they leave the robot behind. But is he even on the ship when McCoy shows up? I don't think he is. I mean, he's only <sighs> in that one. <clears throat> well, oh, no, no, I lied. There he is. Yeah, he's he's in it later. He's in it right when uh, McCoy gets drugged. Right, because he does go to the ship. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess they left him with the with the old ship. Anyway, so what do you think about the... Uh, medical patent thing. Yeah, what medical patent and and the medical patent that 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 McCoy and Spock share? Right. So were these from you know when the ship gets in a big problem and uh and they got some kind of bug that's infecting the ship and they come up with a way to get rid of it? I mean that turns into a medical patent? I'm assuming, but you know You've worked with big corporations, and I've worked with big corporations, and one of the first things you do when you get signed on is sign a uh, – I forgot what it is. But basically, anything you come up with while you're working for this company yeah. is their property. Is there, I kind of think that the Federation might be the same thing. Nah. You know, if you're working with our equipment and you've come up with something while you're on the job, it's ours, not yours. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really confused on the whole medical patent thing. So, of course, back in Star Trek days, original series, um, it wasn't quite as um, 
post-capitalistic as next gen. You know, where they didn't have money and everybody blah 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 blah. I mean, uh, in the original track, they had they had credits and they had stuff. I mean, they right because I mean the whole thing. Okay, because you get far enough in the Star Trek universe and you wonder about all this. Um, Protective property because that's what patents do and all this kind of stuff. Make sure people get paid for their um, for their efforts. Right. Yeah. It's not until Star Trek Four that they establish that there's no money in the future. Oh, they said that in Four. Cool. Yeah, McCoy. Oh, yeah. When, when he's talking to all oh, right, when he's talking to the uh, to the whale scientist. Right. 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 Well, in that case, yeah. What's going on here? You know. Yeah, but but it, when you're gonna do something like this, money is always a good thing to throw into the mix, right? Uh, to motivate bad people to do something. Exactly. So, uh, may I talk about the bad people here for a minute? Please do. So, when I'm reading this, and it establishes that this Anton is a rival of McCoy, and he loved the wife of McCoy, and ends up mm-hmm. with her, and all that stuff. I'm reading it, going, man, this is familiar. And then there's a novel that came out in 1993 that that I remember reading called Shadows on the Sun, mm-hmm. and it, and in that story McCoy is um, reunited with his wife, his ex-wife, and her current husband, and it has this you know a lot of flashbacks to their childhood, and he and her new husband were rivals, and for her uh-huh. affection, and that she ends up choosing McCoy, but then she ends up. Uh, cheating on McCoy with this other guy and they get a divorce and blah 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 blah. Ah, but uh, what's funny is that, you know, obviously that's really close to what we have here, but the names are different. So in in this one, it's Anton um, Zanbar. Or, is that his last name? Something like that. And her name is Joanne. Yeah. Joanna. Or Joanne. Uh, but then in Shadows of the Sun... Um, Zauber. Anton Zauber. Yeah, Anton Zauber. But in Shadows of the Sun, his wife's name was um, Jocelyn, hmm. and the rival's name was Clay Treadway. And you know, he Clay Treadway wasn't a doctor. He, but they were rivals when they were growing up, and uh, Clay became like an ambassador or something. But but what's funny is that in that in that novel, they established that you know McCoy's and Jocelyn's daughter is Joanna. McCoy and I'm like, oh, hmm. <laughs> that's uh, confusing. Yeah, but I mean, to have this whole dynamic where you know there was this rivalry and then you know the divorce and then she goes back with the the other suitor that she had when they were young. I mean, obviously the guy who wrote Shadows of the Sun and I think that it was Michael Jan Friedman. I'd have to go back and check uh, on the bookshelf. But anyways, I mean, obviously. He must have known about this the story, so I don't know why they didn't just keep the names. Otherwise, it's it's a mighty huge coincidence that uh, that you know pretty much the, the same backstory of McCoy and his ex-wife were used in both storylines. Don't you think? Yep. Yep. Seems weird, right? It's weird, man. But it's kind of cool though, too, because I mean this this comic book. I mean, I I don't think a lot of people have read this comic strip. No, probably not. <laughs> no. And it's really hard when you go to like Memory Alpha or Memory Beta, 
there's hardly any information about these comic strips uh, on those websites. So it's, it was either a coincidence that Shadows of the Sun established a similar storyline or or maybe they just, I don't know, changed it up because nobody would remember the names from the um, from the comic strip. I don't know. Anyways, I just thought it was cool. I thought it was uh, cool and odd at the same time. Well, yeah. And, and, I, and, 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 and there's a lot of... Um gaps in events that happen in the Star Trek universe that if these different media take shots at filling them in, it's like especially if there are things that didn't get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of eyes on them like this it's like they'll go ahead and eh, they throw some things here and obviously later writers don't feel compelled to uh, necessarily stick with that version of the yeah that's true, that's true of the continuity, if they're even aware of them if they're even aware, yeah, which I don't I think I don't. I don't think there was a lot of research done in the uh, you know comic books or comic strips when they're writing the newest novel or the newest movie or whatever they they. Right. But anyways, like I said, I just thought it was odd that it was close enough that it was it could have been a, a, a nod to a previous story, but it was also dissimilar enough that you ma- makes you wonder if it was just a coincidence. Don't know. Anyways, indeed. What else do you got on this one? Because I'm pretty much done. Yeah, I really don't have uh, that much more to say about it. It's just that I thought the artistry was quite good on it. Uh, the drawings of um, Doctor Zauber uh, looks just like DeForest Kelly. It was like I, I thought. I thought at least the weekend versions of the comics were really good, nice color, and very good artistry. Oh, I thought. I thought. I thought he looked spot on pretty much all the way through. I mean, every once in a while, looks a little well, weird, but well, take take a look at um, oh, these aren't pages, but uh, there's this one section where it's all black and white, where uh, it's just after they they switched or, or they he, he drugged McCoy at first, right, and puts him inside that canister thing, right. That's markedly lower quality. Um, Oh. Drawings. Oh yeah, than definitely. the one before. Yeah, because you got to remember the panels on the daily strips are so much smaller than what they get in sure. the uh, the Sunday paper. Yeah, and they they put a lot less effort into them, also time and effort. Yeah, I mean the 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 size, sure. The fact it's black and white, sure. But I just think the quality of the uh, the drawings just aren't as high. Yeah, but look, there's, not, there's as much detail. Yeah, look at the March 29th one though. I mean, yeah, March 29th. Uh, March 23rd, March 29th, March 26th. So it's pretty far along. Yeah, it's the next one. 29th, 29th. It's the one right after the 26th. Oh. Hmm. But, I mean, it has that picture of McCoy in the... Oh, I will agree that that, that one shot there at the end, at the very end of that panel, it's, you know, McCoy's face is really close up. Right. Um, And that is that is pretty good. But look at the ones before it. I mean, low detail. Um, I, I. Yeah, I'm not going to argue. Watched out. I'm yeah. not going to argue with you because you're absolutely right. But I mean, uh, I mean, I'm just saying that you had to, you couldn't put in a lot of detail on every panel because I don't think that it would have translated well in the mass-produced um, newspapers. Yeah. Yep. But and I'm just saying that it, you know they look markedly better on the weekends. But, I agree, but I'm just, I'm just mesmerized by the shininess 
of the head of Zartan uh, Zartan's Zart- head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just mem- mesmerized by that. That looks just like a butt. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It does I, look a little like a butt. And when I say little, I mean a lot. <laughs> I think the triple agrees. Oh, you you you're pulling out the triple. I did. I pull out the triple. He's not very loud right now. Oh, there, there he, he goes. He agrees. He says Sartan's head, but is <laughs> a butt. Now, if you look or at Zantra, whatever. If you look at the next Sunday paper, um, Zantra, the one that came out. Uh, I don't see it. Oh, April sixth, nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shows Scotty. On his off hours, and the uh, the Zarins uh, that work in the engineering department come talk to him. Oh, right, right. He's playing with a little toy. Yeah, toy of the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. and they're coming in. Can we bother you? Oh, I'm not busy, lads. I'm just playing with my little toy. <laughs> Anyways, I have a toy just like that, by the way. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, so I can't I fault him too much because uh, it's kind of cool. But you know, as, as long as you don't go flying it around the room, going pew pew pew, you know, you're probably okay. Only on special occasions. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> we should move on. <laughs> but uh, the last thing I have is um, Chapel actually explains what the belt buckle does. So, oh yeah, with, right. with the new costumes. The belly button thing. Yeah, they have a, a belt buckle that's actually their uh, life sign scanner thing, which I yeah. thought was actually kind of cool because, to my knowledge, this is the only time it's ever explained, or at least the first time I've read it where it's explained. Well, when the original movie came out, I was just reading everything I could about it, and you know they they, they had pointed out how that worked. Yeah, yeah, I always... That was a long time ago. Yeah, I always knew what it was because I always associated it with just like the... Um, the communicator on, you know, the next generation where, you know, the, the communicator kind of kept track of all that and could tell the computer where you were at any given time. Right. But, uh, so the original motion picture, they had the communicator on their wrist and the belt buckle on their belt. Yep. And then in Star Trek Two, they got rid of both of them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Back to basics. Yeah, but I, again, I just liked it. I thought it was cool. Yeah, and I uh, actually I like the wrist radios, which I think we both said that in the past. Yeah, makes more sense. Right. All right, that was my last note for that is- uh, that episode or that issue. And and that's my last comment too. Ah, uh, a, a very good issue. Yep, thought it was good. So uh, normally we do the elsewhere in Star Trek and. We would do it for September 1980 because that's when that Marvel comic came out. And all that happened in September of 1980 is that that Marvel comic came out. (laughs) (laughs) So there's nothing. Not a lot of activity. Nope. Oh. All right. So that being said, that finishes up uh, episode two of our motion picture era. And next week or next episode, we will be covering episode number 26. Yeah, hold on one second. I got to pull up my list of what we're covering next week. Your sheet sheet? Yep. Or I should say your schedule. My schedule. Yes, Jean-Luc. So, episode 26, we will be covering comic strip number four, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the Marvel comic book series number seven. And we're actually going to get a DC comic book number 19. So the the little... the For whatever reason, the DC comic number 19 was just a random issue that was based in the motion picture, the post-motion picture pre-con timeline. So issue number 18 and 20 were after uh, Star Trek 2. Might have even been after Star Trek 3 by that time. But for whatever reason, they just had this one-off where it went back to uh, this timeline. Hmm. And what's really cool about... Just to keep people guessing. I get, well, what's really cool about it is that it's written by Walter Koenig. Oh, cool. So I was all excited about that when when it came out. Uh, well, not when it came out, but when I finally got a hold of it. Because I... Well, we'll talk about it more next week. But I was excited because I thought it would explain more of how... You know, in Star Trek One, he was aboard the Enterprise. Star Trek Two, he was a commander on the Reliant. So, I was thinking, awesome! It's going to bridge those two movies and tell you what's going on in Chekhov's life. Hmm. So, we'll talk about it next week when we actually review it. Excitement! I know, right? Or actually, it's probably yes. In the continuity of our many listeners. It may be next week, but in actual fact, it might be a little longer in our recording schedule. Right. With the Christmas holidays coming up for us. Yep. But nobody's going to be listening to this until at least April. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, until then, everybody, I will talk to you later. And I, too. So, see you later. And have a... Have a great time until we uh, see you next time on episode number 26 of Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here